Hello, and welcome to this month's Archimedes podcast from the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. Archimedes, as you probably know, is the evidence-based section of the Archives, where we take real clinical questions that people have submitted, and they've also gone away, look for the evidence, appraise that evidence, and come back with a clinical bottom line to answer the question they started with. And we also, every month, have a handy hint about practising evidence-based medicine or understanding critical appraisal in some way. This month, we're going to start with that, and that's sort of a back-to-basics thing, thinking about what does intention-to-treat mean. The principle of intention-to-treat analysis is that the participants in a randomised trial are analysed in the group to which they were randomised, regardless of what treatment they actually received. Now, the thing that sits behind this is that the entire point in doing a randomised trial is that your randomisation evens out all of the prognostic factors in the two groups. And so, as populations, the only thing that differs between them is the thing that you're doing, the, the intervention. And so, preserving that goes along with keeping the patients in those groups to which they go along. So if we had a hypothetical trial of, say, salbutamol versus aminophylline for severe asthma, regardless of what medicine the child got, they get placed in the you-should-have-had group. So the effect of this would be that if some folk in the intervention arm, say the salbutamol arm, do not get the intervention, e.g. they were about to get a salbutamol infusion, but the potassium was already falling down and it seemed unreasonable to give it to them so they got aminophylline instead. Or, if a child in the aminophylline group was already throwing up then it just seemed unreasonable to pour that into them and make it worse. Then what that does is it seems to reduce the observed effect of the drug. Which then, isn't that unfair? But, hang on. Pragmatic randomised controlled trials, the ones that we're talking about, these test an interventional approach. They don't test if the drug salbutamol or the drug aminophylline is the thing that works, but they test the approach of using salbutamol infusion or using aminophylline infusion. It might be characterised as which is better, using salbutamol infusions or using aminophylline infusion for patients unless it's clear that there's some reason that they can't have that one. Like, like actually, that one's really sick. They need intensive care. R- right right now. C- c- could someone just go and ring 2222 for me, please? It's a practical approach to putting the science into the clinical medicine. Now, if there are lots of deviations from the protocol, crossovers from one arm for another, and non-receipt of the allocated intervention it's important to look very closely as to why. The way that the trial was being done clearly doesn't work as well as they thought it would do. It needs reassessing. It's not necessarily that the intervention doesn't work, but that the way it was being done is unlikely to be effective. And so you need to go back and look at it again rather than throw the entire thing out. Now, Talking of salbutamol and asthma leads us neatly on to the second of our Archimedes questions in the print edition and the first that we're dealing with in the podcast. This is the question of if oral salbutamol has a role in the treatment of asthma in resource-poor environments. The 
Authors, uh, Dominic O'Reilly, Abdi Awale and Peter Cartilage, are from a variety of hospitals in Yorkshire and Kenya. And the case is of a UK paediatric trainee working in a district general hospital in Kenya where they see a four-year-old with asthma. Third episode of wheeze, requiring admission, and it suggests that he should be sent home with a short-acting bronchodilator, salbutamol, to be given via a water bottle spacer. But... The actual puffer, the metre-dosed inhaler, is relatively expensive. However, oral salbutamol is being sold in nearby pharmacies at a much lower cost, and the trainee wondered if it should be acceptable in this situation. The National Paediatric Protocol for Kenya states that oral salbutamol should only be given if it is the only option available and for a maximum duration of one week. And so the PICO was formed in a child with chronic asthma in a low-resource setting is oral salbutamol, the intervention, an acceptable low-cost alternative to inhaled salbutamol, the standard intervention, in the reduction of frequency and severity of current or subsequent wheezing episodes, or the improvement of lung function in the outcomes. The team went away and performed a literature research in Cochrane, PubMed and Embase, searching through to January 2015, but only addressing the English language articles. In total, they got around about 900 articles and went through those and crushed them down. They looked at the titles and abstracts and then pulled a load of full text and then brought it down into six trials from six different countries, only one of which was undertaken in a low or middle income country. The trials ranged in size from 10 to 20 participants through 100 and odd up to 780, the 780 being the multi-centre trial that was undertaken in Pakistan. Overall, the evidence was that both oral and inhaled versions of salbutamol worked in terms of improving lung function, and the studies tended to show that the inhaled version was a little better than the oral version. But... When you put this alongside the situation in Kenya, where there is low parental education frequently, the costs of the drugs are hugely different, and also that the adherence rates in the one where it was applied were about 40% for the inhaled treatments versus 80-odd percent for the oral treatments, and that's in a setting where it was within a trial with lots of intensive input, you sort of tend to the idea that an oral treatment in that setting might not be as bad an idea as it first seems. Certainly, the certainly the authors of this conclude that in children with asthma, oral salbutamol can be offered as a cost-effective alternative to inhaled salbutamol in the low-resource settings, but that the inhaled preparations do provide a faster response and they may provide fewer side effects, although the data on this was a little unclear. Our second question in this podcast also relates to an atopy-related problem, that of severe eczema, no longer in the zone of asthma, but very, very severe eczema, to the point where you're wondering about using systemic methotrexate. The question comes from Miriam Scott, who's working at the University of Cambridge as a medical student, and the scenario is of a 10-year-old female with severe atopic eczema with frequent flare-ups and multiple secondary infections ever since she was about 6, currently on high-dose steroid when she has a flare and then a slow tapering of the dose. 
the eczema is having a severe effect on her quality of life. She struggles at school and struggles with steep. And the author wonders if methotrexate would improve the severity of the eczema. The simple question is, in children with severe eczema, does methotrexate reduce the severity of their symptoms? The search was done in Cochrane and in Medline, bringing down only three papers that were relevant. As you may know, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence guideline, the NICE guideline, recommends initiation of phototherapy or systemic therapies in those children where there is such severe eczema that they don't get response from the usual measures. In the entire guideline, the methotrexate advice was based on just two studies performed in adults. This Archimedes paper finds three more studies that have been undertaken in children using methotrexate for those with severe eczema symptoms. One is a trial, two are retrospective reviews where it has been used and outcomes measured from what are within the notes. There are a number of weaknesses with this sort of evidence. It's based on those patients in whom the doctors selected the methotrexate to be used. It reflects what they wrote down in their notes rather than necessarily a structured and objective scoring of the outcomes and it's certainly subject to the biases of knowing that you were on a treatment that was meant to be working and that the doctors were giving a treatment that they desperately hoped would work. The unblinded RCT is a slightly higher quality and does at least take an objective-ish approach and with a regular prospective measurement of the outcomes. This does show that if you compare methotrexate to cyclosporin, both of them reduce the severity of eczema symptoms and there's no real difference between methotrexate and cyclosporin in the doses that were used and there's an implication there that methotrexate in these highly resistant patients would be better than doing nothing. Even if we accept that methotrexate really might well work in this situation. The challenge of what dose, for what duration, how often to test how often to check response, what to do in terms of dose escalation or dose reduction and tapering are all completely unanswered by the evidence that's out there at the moment. It is a tricky situation and certainly the do everything else until you move here and only do it under expert advice seems to be a sensible conclusion to be reached. And the clinical bottom lines are that this demonstrates methotrexate is effective in children with eczema, but that a better series of investigations need to be undertaken in order to work out exactly what dose is required, over what duration, and in what sort of regimes. This month's Archimedes, hopefully, will have tickled your fancy. We don't just take things on atopy. Any problem in paediatrics is amenable to the Archimedes approach. So, why don't you have a go, write in, follow the instructions on the Archives website, and get involved in doing your own clinical evidence review of the next problem that comes your way. Until next month, thank you for listening.